Hello, coffee drinkers. Or should I say, as I was corrected by Ivan Torres, um, who told me after the last episode that Bebedores de Café is the direct translation. Uh, but uh, Ivan says um, a more catchy way would be Cafetorros, cafe, no, Cafeterros, or uh, Café in, in Omanos. In Omanos. So I got to dig into those and check them out. Ask my uh, translator in chief, Antonio Fortin, see what's up with those. But um, yeah, so Café Terros, probably the easier of the two. What's up? Uh, great response to the last episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for that, talking about touring. Um, and I got a bunch of questions, some touring related, some not so much uh, on Instagram. So we're definitely going to get into those on this episode uh, no little rug rat in the background on this one. Um, although she is, I've got her on my little monitor. She's in bed right now. <laughs> she's coughing away. Poor little thing. Maybe she's sensed that I'm recording the podcast and, uh, wants to be a part of it by taking me away to tend to her. Nope. She seems to have quietened down. Let's see how long this lasts. Let's get straight in with, um, with John, John on uh, on Telegram had a great question about touring. It's really, <coughs> excuse me, it's really, um, yeah. Okay, R- the question is, how does one finance a DIY tour such as this? As a twenty-something dr- uh, doing car tours, I know firsthand how expensive it can be. Uh, credit card debt, perhaps uh, a good nine to five for the rest of the year. I just don't know where the cash comes from to finance a tour up front. Um, as always, thanks for the great content. I hope you and the family well, John. Yeah, well, John, thanks for your question. Family doing uh, doing okay. We're all a little bit sick this week, but yeah, um, definitely a question of the moment right now. Where does it where does it all come from? Well, it depends what your risk tolerance is, right? Um, and how how late you feel you can leave booking the travel. That's always the balance point. Um, you know, I'm pretty certain when I book a tour, um, in fact, I won't actually go on the tour unless I am pretty certain that I've got a good enough combination of guarantees. We're talking about finance here. Um, good enough combination of guarantees. And also if I do have to take some, uh, you know, What's the, the classic word is door money gig, but you know, door split, sort of venue split thing where they're not guaranteeing you or anything. You've got to sell the tickets to make the money. Um, if I'm doing those kind of shows, you know, I'm doing the first night of the tour is like that in London. That's a that's a split with the venue. That's uh, I don't want to tell you the I, I'm not I don't want to keep it a secret at all, but I also don't want to tell you the wrong information. Um, and I don't have it to hand right now, but I will say it's either 60-40 or 70-30. That's kind of the split um, with a 120 uh, capacity venue. So you can do the maths on that, £25 a ticket. It's not retirement money, let's put it that way. Um, but it is a you know quote-unquote quiet night of the week. So there are so many... Okay, the short answer to your question is that there are so many factors that go into it so many tiny behind the scenes factors that go into it that it's really hard to answer your question with one definitive answer um but what i am going to do is try and answer it with a bunch of um different you know uh anecdotes like this and pieces of information so i'm trying to have a balance of guarantees 
the festival at the end of the tour pays pretty well and that's a guarantee you know no matter how many people show up i'm getting paid a, a, a fixed amount of money that's in a contract that has been agreed on for some time so that's it's kind of a, an anchor point you'll find that quite a lot of successful tours um, are, are often anchored around a festival or two if you can take two or three weeks on the road if you have two or three festivals that pay really well you can balance it out and you can afford to do a lower paying gig on a Monday or a Tuesday night when you know you have a big guaranteed festival or maybe you're playing a big city, maybe you're playing like Rome or Paris or London or Madrid or Buenos Aires or something on a Saturday night in a concert hall and you know it's going to be packed and you know those ticket prices are slightly higher than a than a smaller gig. You know, when I th- <laughs> I'm immediately thinking back to a few things uh, from, let me see, 2009... I think 2009, because I'm thinking about being on the road with Odin Varga and Jojo Mayer on drums and my buddy Ollie Rockberger on keyboards. And, you know, a smaller gig like Edinburgh, the jazz bar, kind of low paying. Um, and like Rotherham, for instance, you know, smaller, nothing against Rotherham at all. We had, we had a blast on that gig. Um, but it's a smaller place and it definitely paid less than other places. And then London was like jam packed. I mean, uh, maybe there's even somebody listening to the podcast that was at that London gig, Siegfried von Underbelly. Uh, I'm not even sure if they're there anymore. Um, but people were packed in up the stairs on that show. So that was, you know, you, you do a bigger gig Friday, Saturday night in a bigger city, and that helps make up for the smaller gigs. Because um, you still want to play those. You still want to play the shows. You want to travel around. You want to make sure you don't leave anyone, you know, left out you know out in the cold if people want to come and see you you want to go and play at least i do anyway i want to go and play all those places rotherham and edinburgh and carlisle and liverpool and manchester you know manchester pretty big city like we're playing manchester london and manchester 22nd and 23rd i'll do a quick plug for the tour here um and here you go here's a real really important element of the way i book this tour um and it speaks to your question um you know london and manchester being successful are dependent on selling tickets. So if anyone's listening from Manchester, first of all, um, go to yannickwasdala.com if you want to see the new trio, August 23rd. Um, that's 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 a beautiful concert hall. I really, something I'm really excited about doing, like I mentioned before, the meet and greet and opening up the sound check. You know, and, and, and here you go. Like the tickets, I generally want to keep around the 25 number. If that's 25 euros, 25 pounds, 25 dollars, I, I don't think that's unreasonable. When I see, you know, when I see man, way bigger names than me playing, you know, you're looking at your Marcus Millers and your Richard Boners and Victor Wootens and the tickets are 60, 70, 80, 90 dollars or euros a ticket. I think, okay, f- for sure, number one, all of those, all those people I just mentioned absolutely deserve every penny of it i think they're you know legendary musicians and they, they absolutely deserve it um i'm obviously aware of the fact i'm not in the same place as them and maybe i never will be um but i am aware of the fact that there are fans out there that want to hear the music nonetheless and i don't want to you know i don't want to cut anyone out so i think right now in 2022 25 is kind of the number if i can get the enough people you know the lowest i want to do is around 80 to 100 people depending on the split. If I'm taking all the money, I can do it as low as 80. If I'm not taking all the money and it's a split on the door, I can do it. Um, you know, it has to be a little bit higher. It has to be around a 120 plus mark. So I think Pizza Express is 120. Um, the Carol Nash Hall at Stoller Hall in Manchester is around 170, but that's also a split. So I really have to sell that 
concert out that completely jam-packed in order to to make the money so here we go in, back to your diy financing it you got to ask yourself where like i said before where your risk tolerance is at and can you live with if you have a credit card that has sufficient credit on it to book things like um flights and travel and hotels and all the logistics can you live with can you budget into your tour the interest payments for those if you let's say you book it all two months ahead can you factor into your tour the interest payments for two months and i don't know what like you know maybe you're let's just say for argument's sake let's use a round number let's say that your overhead for a two-week tour with a trio with travel and everything is ten thousand dollars and what is what is the percentage? What are you going to pay in interest for two months on that ten thousand dollars? Can you factor that in uh, and make it up through your through your ticket sales and pay off that credit card as soon as um, the money comes in from the shows? Now, generally speaking, the money isn't coming in the night of the show. So if you're booking the travel two months ahead, you might have to factor in an extra month because a lot of contracts are going to be a thirty day um, payment period after the show happens and then you've got to be really on top of your invoicing you know i generally have all of my invoices ready to go uh with everything except the exact number of ticket sales and the 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 amount that i'm owed in them and i'll put that in there as soon as the gig is done i'll find out from the box office and send it in so there's no two three day lag you know then you forget about it and you've already played three shows and you're like oh shit i've got to do three of these things no i have those all dialed in in my laptop ready to go and I send them as soon as I get back from the hotel, sometimes even from the dressing room if we've settled up and, um, you know, it's good, the money's coming as a wire transfer. So factor in those things, booking two months ahead, because also you you want to save money, like booking last minute flights and travel is super expensive. So you really do need to book two months ahead. Um, and booking late is not really, in my experience, is not going to save you any money um, in terms of having less interest to pay on the credit card of the of the you know the outset of of finances ahead of the tour so that's one massive thing where's, where's your risk tolerance can you risk it do you know that you're going to make what you need uh, uh to cover that debt um so there's there is that and do you have enough guarantees to cover the logistics debt on the credit card and then how do you work paying your band and there are just so many factors it is crazy the more i think about it um and then where are you at in your career? Like what kind of venues are you playing? What can you, what demands, uh, demands is a little bit of a strong one, but yeah, but let's say what demands can you make as an artist um, in terms of, uh, you know, being able to go somewhere and sell those tickets and be in the right size venue and not lose your shirt, you know, not drown in it all. You really, and you have, you just have to be realistic about that. That's why I think I'm, why I'm saying that is you have to be realistic about what, who you are, where you are in your career. Uh, mentioning, you know, Victor Wooten, for instance. The last time I saw Vic, uh, like outside of the U.S., I think was in um, 2016, and I, I, I actually I sat in with him at the gig. I was in town um, for Wimbledon. I was doing the tennis thing for a year, so and 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 I happened to be staying around the corner from where he was playing, and he was playing for uh, he was playing at a venue. I'm sure you're well aware of it called Under the Bridge, which is at Chelsea Football Ground. It's a pretty big venue. I want, I want to say that's like five or six hundred people. I know that's where Jojo Mayer played a couple of times with Nerve. It's not a tiny pokey club, and it was packed. I mean, it was sold, sold, sold out, and. You know, if I put myself in asking that question, I'm like, I know I can't sell 500 tickets in London. 
so I don't make the mistake of taking the risk on a big venue and then crying about it afterwards and wondering why I've, you know, wondering why I didn't make the money back. Um, so yeah, so many factors with that. Um, and, and of course, you know, what you asked about, should you have a nine to five the rest of the year? Um, I mean, everyone's different. I don't, I mean, I do, I have a nine to nine, basically 24 hour gig because I am a small business. I do have other sources of income. I, I write books, I have an online based uh, school, you know, I tour as a sideman with other people, I work as a freelance musician, you know, so I, I, I work in music pretty much around the clock. So that definitely is a factor when I look at the finances for it. I have to say to myself, okay, I have money coming from other places and that can help finance the tour up front as long as the tour is going to make the money back from that um, uh, after the fact. So, yeah, I think it's quite a complicated question. There's probably a book. There's probably a book already been written on it, actually. Um, maybe I'll try and do some uh, research and see if there are any good touring books out there. Or maybe I'll end up writing one after the, after this one way out. Um, well, tour gets finished in about 18 months. I'll, I'll have seen how many gigs I can I'll have strung together and how it all went and which continents we visited and who we met along the way. That might actually make an interesting book and kind of, yeah. I don't mind sharing all the information as well. I'm not shy about, you know, sharing how much money is made and not made, you know, more importantly, you've got to share the the fails as well as the as well as the wins. They they're just as if not more important in terms of uh in terms of learning how to do it better next time. So let's go over to Instagram. There were I think no um no uh touring questions, but there were lots of questions, which was nice. Um I guess this is kind of a touring question uh, from Yonid Ray. I don't know. Yonid Ray. I, I, some of these names, I just, yeah, I shouldn't even be attempting them. But anyway, um, how do you deal with creative differences between bandmates? Ooh. Always be the boss? I don't know. <laughs> Always be the band leader? I don't know. That's an age-old age-old thing right you just watch vh1 behind the music or something am i dating myself by saying that it's probably not even a thing anymore but you know watch behind the watch documentary videos about great bands the eagles or anyway everyone has fights and disagreements and i think for me on my level i've got to or in my on my level what i don't know what that is in, in my world in my lane of playing with who i play with um as a, I think it's different for me. In two, it's two different scenarios. There's one is the band leader, the artist situation, where I am the boss, um, and one is the sideman, the freelance musician, you know, uh, hat that I wear from time to time. Um, I think on the freelance thing, I say no a lot, so I avoid confrontation uh, and creative differences and, and that kind of thing because I just don't put myself in the situation enough to be dealing with it um I, I used to a lot you know I used to say yes to everything and was on the road eight nine sometimes ten months of the year and i just i can't do that anymore i don't really even want to do that anymore and uh as a result I just i just say no a lot um which you know that's another thing you have to consider it's like where are you have to ask yourself where you're at in your career where are you at in your life what are your priorities what do you want out of the thing? You know, do you love uh, what you do, and and how do you maintain that um, 
kind of vibrancy for it, that enthusiasm, that curiosity. And for me, it's like it's saying no a lot. And it, that sounds like a really dickish thing to say, but I don't mean it like that at all. I, I really sort of ask myself, you know, what's important for me, you know, and do I love the music? And is it, am I going to be able to serve the music completely uh, like unhindered and give it a hundred percent of my attention? And if, if it's anything less than that, that's, I, I generally say no. So I say no a lot because I've got a lot of other things going on and I'd like to concentrate on my own music. So that kind of clears up the sideman thing a little bit. It also makes me super fortunate to travel and to work with, uh, when I do work as a freelance musician, to work with people I really care about and I care about being there and we collectively care about being there together. So that sort of heightens the experience for everyone. So I'm looking for that kind of experience when I go out to play someone else's music. You know, I do that with Bob Reynolds um, and have done for decades now, a couple of decades. I, I appreciate very much the, the times, uh, not that they are plentiful, but they, well, they, they have been quite a few times, but it's not like we go out every month. But I appreciate the time I spend with Benny Greb when I'm on the road um, and Sven and, and, uh, and, and uh, just that whole setup is... Um, it's really like everyone's sort of giving to the music, which is really, really important. Um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to describe. And, you know, uh, Steve Smith with Mike Stern, with Randy Brecker, people I very much admire who are heroes of mine. I've been able to say yes to those kind of gigs. And that's awesome. Now, the, the pop thing, the, the real commercial thing is is pretty much a hard no every time now. Um I think so much so that I just don't get asked to do it anymore that often. So I don't actually have to say no, which is awesome. It's just a, that was a different part of my life. And um, and here I am doing what I do now. Uh, let's get some more questions. Um, as a bassist, how do you start getting in the studio musician business? Is it just luck? Well, it's definitely not luck. Let me tell you that. Because there basically is no studio musician business anymore. Not not like there was um, golden era, you know, 60s, 70s. 80s 90s when we're talking about the, the the sort of stereotypical commercial studio thing london la new york that kind of thing nashville now it's not like there isn't a scene in each city to re- for recording music of course there are still bass players that work all the time there are musicians that, that work all the time um you know in, in in los angeles here where i live you're looking at sean hurley chris cheney nathan east lee sklar you know you know Nathan and 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 Lee more like the the I don't want to call them elder statesmen because I still think of them as I remember them seeing them first with like Phil Collins or Eric Clapton or something so I think I think of those two guys as being very youthful and vibrant still and then you've got you know Sean Hurley and Chris Cheney who are both older than me I think and I feel like they're younger you know so uh, but what you don't have is a bunch of 23 year old cats running around from capital to village to united to east west you know doing five sessions a day that that is not a thing anymore and the way the way in is very hard so it's no it's not just luck at all i think it's actually uh really hard work super super hard work harder than it has ever been maybe in the history of recording if you want to be in like the big studio like the classic things like doing records not that that thing really happens that much anymore you know a lot of people record at home a lot of huge bands 
you know, do it piecemeal here and there and demos get sent in for singers to sing over and the band goes, well, that sounds good. I don't even really need to replace that. You know, so it's it's definitely changed. Um, I think it, if you want to, cre- I think you have to create your own scene. I think you have to do something that no one else does. Um, that, that would probably be my suggestion if you wanted to be a recording musician and you know, I, I love it. I got to say, I'm a huge fan of being in the studio. It's a completely different art form from playing live. It's a completely different set of um, of skills and of managing people and managing your time and your nerves and your concentration and all of these things. You know, it's a very, very specific set of skills. Um, and I think you pr- probably want to try and create your own scene and do something that no one else does to make you an attractive choice as a uh, as a bass player all right uh long answer to a very short question um let's see oh herbie bass 53 asks hi yannick uh can you talk about developing your vocabulary as a jazz musician well i can <laughs> we might be here a while um i think the book i wrote iconic lines is probably it is best summed up in that book the development of jazz and jazz vocabulary through the ages from the 20s to the current day um, to the present day and just all of the different styles and the the, the musicians i grew up listening to and, and loving and being inspired by and transcribing and repeating and slowly letting them seep into my own vocabulary that's that's how you do it you do it as with learning any language if you wanted to learn Icelandic right now, well, that's a, I mean, any language, I guess, is kind of not easy. I think Icelandic, off the top of my head, that was a bit of a super difficult one from what I'm told. But if, why not? You know, jazz is not simple. Jazz vocabulary is not is not exactly simple. So why not pick Icelandic? You'd have a hard time learning Icelandic if you uh, you move to Delaware. You know, unless I've randomly picked the one place that has the biggest Icelandic population in America, I don't think so. So. I hope you get what I mean, that you, if you're moving to Delaware, you're probably not going to improve your reactive skills of speaking Icelandic. You, you should probably go to Reykjavik. You should probably go live in Iceland. You should probably immerse yourself in the sound and and the culture and the vocabulary. And that's there's no different for jazz. Um, just because jazz is readily available in your smartphone, millions upon millions of songs. So you don't have to travel to a specific country to be able to hear that every second of every day. Um, I guess you could play Icelandic television around the clock. That's one way to do it. But you know what I mean. You you need to be immersed in the sound, and that's that's what you should do. It's, you know, you should be immersed in the sound of anything you want to be fluent in. And jazz is no different from learning a language. A um, lot of nice comments in here as well. Thank you, guys. I'm I'm. They're not questions, so I'm not going to read them all out. But there were a lot of nice com- uh, comments about the podcast and playing and stuff. So appreciate that. Um, there are some that I don't understand. Um, uh, Sheldon writes, Adam Rogers interview, question mark. Yeah, that would be fun. I love Adam. Um, he's out playing with Steely Dan right now, which I think is freaking awesome. I actually would love to hear that live. I think he's the, like, the perfect guy for that gig. And if, I'm sure like, as any chat I've had with Adam before has been interesting. I'm sure one recorded for the podcast will be as well, but who knows? Um, He's in New York. I'm in L.A. I'm not doing Zoom anymore. No, thank you. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd love to maybe when I'm in New York for long enough. Actually, I'm going to be in New York in September. Okay, okay. Maybe I'll take the recording device and uh, hit Adam up. Um, 
let's see. What led you to develop your right hand technique? Well, I, um, I don't know. It came completely naturally. I uh, don't think I copied anyone. Um, I know that I copied Lawrence Cottle a lot in the beginning because that's who I was seeing almost every night of the week play live. That was my first main reference to um, bass technique. You know, that was the biggest influence on me uh, from the beginning. In terms of my technique now, which I think is actually quite different from Lawrence's, it just came out of a necessity for like, you know, I, I never like practiced any technique just for the sake of having it. The technique always came as a byproduct from wanting to learn something I, I couldn't play. So that was, you know, the catalyst for that was transcription. So I'd be transcribing all kinds of things, piano chords and guitar comping and solos and lyrics and singers and all kinds of, just anything that was really sort of uh, piquing my curiosity. And as a result of trying to play a bunch of that stuff uh, with no visual reference whatsoever, um, came whatever you know my right hand technique now is um and it's it's quite specific i think a lot of people miscategorize it a lot of people call it a floating thumb and the thumb does not float and i'm gonna be saying this until the day i die i think but the thumb doesn't float the thumb is always anchored to something i think that's what makes the technique effective um and what makes my muting effective and gives me, uh, you know, way more range in terms of uh, what I'm able to do with the right hand. Um, so yeah, it's 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 tough to it's tough to answer that question uh, without you know being in person and you know maybe digging deeper into some of the aspects of it and actually showing you some of the things that happen. Not that there's any shortage of footage of uh, of my playing online, of course, and close-ups on. Instagram recently I've been posting a bunch of reels if you've been checking that out uh, so there's there's no shortage of footage of what is going on um, maybe that's a nice uh, idea for tomorrow's reel I've been trying to post one reel a day on Instagram maybe I'll do that tomorrow and do a nice close-up on the right-hand technique with something that's a little challenging and uh, kind of highlight exactly why I do that it's basically it's because the muting is super effective and I can be really solidly anchored no matter where I am on the instrument. You know, I have five-string bass, E to C, and if I'm playing the C string, I can be anchored really nicely on the on the G string. Um, same with playing the G string, anchored on the D. I'm always anchored uh, um, one string. Is that right? Yep, I'm always anchored one string below the one I'm playing. Mm. That's basically the only playing I'm doing in the podcast today. Wow. A major scale. Lame-o. <laughs> um, which means I've now got to spend some time practicing before I go to bed. A little late here in California. And I guess on that on that note, I'll leave you. Um, probably should have said something about this in the beginning of the podcast. I'll probably put up another episode this week and talk about it a little more because it's a project I've been working on for quite a few months now. As though putting out, going to Spain and recording a new album and putting it out and making a documentary and booking a tour and being a sideman and raising a daughter and, you know, all those other things weren't enough um, for the past few months, four, five, six months almost. I've been working on a new book called The Bass Player's Guide to Altered Chords and Vocabulary. And we actually just launched the presale today. Um, you can go to my website, theanagwasdala.com. It's right there in the store. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that and kind of why I did it 
you know, it's like altered. I'm, I get so many questions about harmony and altered vocabulary and altered chords and, and why it is an altered, what, what makes an altered chord an altered chord. Like that's always kind of highest on the list of, uh, or, or most, the most volume of questions I get are about that. So I took a look back over the last almost 30 years of my practice routine and my playing and all the transcriptions and kind of dug through the archives and put everything under the, under the magnifying glass and, and pulled out a lot of uh, really nice information stuff. I, I've been working on my whole career and put it in a book with a nice arc and, you know, basically get you to understand altered chords and scales in the very first part of the very first chapter and then take this, you know, super nice, hopefully inspiring and, uh, you know, piquing your interest um, and your curiosity through this journey of altered sounds and what you can do with that with triads and chords and scales and how to think of chords and 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 scales and, and most importantly you know the the thinking about it is maybe to get your foot in the door and, and help you to understand it a little bit but most importantly after you're done thinking about it and you kind of understand what it is is to really forget about it it goes back to the question that was asked about developing jazz vocabulary um really to to immerse yourself and really get you that tool of being able to recognize when you hear you know pat metheny or michael brecker or someone or herbie hancock play something you be oh that's altered i know exactly where that is i know that those are these triads but you don't ever the, the goal is to not have to ever think about the, the mechanics of it the theory of it you'll just be able to you know react naturally to it just as you would if somebody asked you a question in your native language Hi, what's the time? And you'd immediately react. Maybe you'd look at your wrist and it would be a supernatural reaction. You go, it's 10.35. And they'd say, thank you. You say, oh, you're welcome. No problem. That natural. that's That's how basic I hope to be able to make altered language to you. Um, Kind of kind of in the same vein as the pentatonics book that was one of that has been one of our most successful books i, I think it's because we, we simplified it a little bit and um kind of demystified it took all the or took all the kind of unless it's not like it isn't hard work it's hard work to be great at anything but took all the kind of unnecessary uh work out of it and sort of focus on the things that really matter to you as a or to us as bass players as musicians period um I think that's kind of been the path I've been on for a while. And it's it's really fun to see that developing through these books. Hopefully it will become more of a series and we can kind of dive into quite quite specific things like like I did with Pentatonics, like I'm doing with this new book on Altered. Um, maybe there'll be some stuff diminished, augmented. I don't know. We'll see what happens in the future. But right now it's uh yeah, it's all kind of coming to coming together. The book is yeah, it's coming out in a, in a few weeks. There's a pre-sale going on right now. We're actually doing something a little different on this one. We're um I'm going to do a 2-hour masterclass for anyone who is a part of the pre-sale. So anyone who pre-orders the book, actually the first I got to limit it a little bit. The first 150 people who pre-order the book before the launch date on August 13th um, get to get to have access to the to the masterclass and I'll be doing that live on uh, August 14th 10 a.m pacific time and I'll be here going live uh, via video and um, get everyone in and people asking questions and uh, answering all your harmony queries and of course talking about altered chords and scales and I'm really yeah I'm really psyched for this book it's uh, probably one of the more adventurous <laughs> pursuits as a as an author or educated educated teacher whatever you want to call it um hopefully you know really really kind of uh, going after your curiosity on that sound and 
how it's not as complicated as maybe you thought it was. I hope that's the I hope that's the realization when you get your hands on this book. Anyway, yeah, uh, check it out if um, if you're interested. It's yannagustala uh, uh, bass player's guide to altered chords and uh, scales. And yeah, thanks for your questions. Really appreciate it. Um, and I will see you guys probably in a few days on the next one.